So in the last lecture, we talked a lot about Aquinas' view on God um, and Anselm's view on God and the medieval perspective on God generally. Um, and we were in quite the rush trying to do all of the history and all of the like relevant philosophical arguments because there was just so much to cover. Um, by contrast, this lecture is going to be a lot more relaxed, a lot more sort of abstract and general. Um, because rather than sort of deep into the, the nitty gritty of the, you know, authority of scripture and the questions of classification that Aquinas is dealing with in question one, as well as sort of the, the questions regarding like God's positive and negative attributes in question 15, um, I want to sort of get more general, more contextual, um, because historically, whenever I teach Aquinas, my students struggle with it a lot. Um, and if you struggle with the last lecture and the last couple of readings, then you were in good company. Everyone does. Um, as I stressed at the end of the lecture last time, Aquinas is the most alien to our own way of thinking. And probably the primary reason why he is so alien is because we have sort of like swallowed wholesale in our modern perspective this idea that faith and rationality do not mix. Um, and that's one of the things that Aquinas is actually addressing here in the text. Like, he is willing to talk about the, the mixing of faith and rationality here. Um, in fact, he talks about it fairly explicitly. He makes a fairly concrete explanation of how it is that faith and rationality mix. Um, but the first thing that I definitely want to do is sort of explain how this works, not just from Aquinas's perspective, but from the perspective of, you know, all of medieval philosophy, which was grappling with this question, as well as the perspective of contemporary Christianity. Um, because not all Christians believe in God because they just do, because faith alone. Um, as much as it has become a very unpopular position in contemporary society, and there are many Christians who have sort of abandoned reason in the name of faith, um, this is not necessarily the dominant or even a terribly desirable perspective. It is a contemporary issue. Um, and the history of that particular issue, like, is fairly, like, broad and complicated, and I don't want to get too deeply into it, especially because we're going to cover a lot of the thinkers that help contribute to that. Um, like, if you want to talk about the separation between faith and reason, well, Hume, later in the semester, is going to give you all you need to know, and if you're not satisfied with that, then Nietzsche is going to drive the last nail into the Christian coffin in the 19th century. Um, but here, in the 14th or the 13th, um, that is not nearly so clear. Like, it is very much assumed by Aquinas and his medieval contemporaries that faith and reason can coexist at worst and can complement one another at best. Um, Anselm thinks this, Aquinas thinks this, most of the scholastics are trying to grapple with this question in one way or another. And while there are some of con uh, Aquinas' contemporaries, like Bonaventure, who tend to come against this idea, who sort of argue that rather we should abandon rationality and science such as it is at this point, and instead ascribe entirely to what the church has to say, like faith alone forget reason, um, this isn't necessarily the only perspective to take, so I want to sort of, like, frame this. 
Um, so first off, like, again, getting back into sort of the broad history stuff that we were talking about last time, um, so much of medieval philosophy is devoted to figuring out how Plato and Aristotle work together, hand in hand, um, with religious teaching, be it Christianity in Western Europe or Judaism or Islam in the Arabian holdings at this point. Like this is, this is the question that everybody is grappling with. Um, and as a result, like everybody has factions. There are Muslims who believe that rationality and uh, science don't mix. And there are Muslims that believe that rationality and science do mix. Um, Al-Ghazali argues that rationality is bunk and that philosophers are nonsense and that God does everything firsthand. Although whether he's doing that satirically is another matter entirely. Whereas Averroes and Avicenna are arguing that philosophy and faith run hand in hand. Um, Bonaventure argues that we should throw out Aristotle and keep Augustine. And Aquinas is arguing that both of them are compatible. Um, and again, to our contemporary mindset, we see this as sort of absurd. Science and religion do not mix. Um, but that has a very narrow understanding of what both science and religion are doing. Um, like, when we talk about science nowadays, we, we usually talk about, like, science with a capital S as though it is a shorthand for the entire scientific establishment. Um, that basically all biologists and all chemists and all physicists and all anthropologists and all psychologists and all sociologists and so on and so forth they are all on the same page, they get data, they publish papers, and when they publish papers, the news reports it to us as scientists say X, and then we know that X is an incontrovertible fact of the universe. Um, except that nowadays we don't even believe that, because there's a, like, a determined minority of people in this country who are arguing that science is nonsense, and that scientists have their own interests, and that they have a liberal bias, and that they're informed by academic values, and that there are cover-ups and conspiracies, and scientists are working against us in a myriad of ways. Um, and again, this whole thing has become so incredibly complicated that I want to sort of stress that, first of all, it isn't that complicated. It doesn't need to be that complicated. And what's more, like, I want to sort of talk about the, the strict limits, um, as it's understood, both here in the medieval period and in our own time, of where science and religion actually do, in fact, stand, what they actually talk about. Um, and the first thing I want to absolutely emphasize here um, is that, at least here in the medieval period, the lines are not clearly drawn. They're not very clearly demarcated. Um, what belongs to faith and what belongs to science are the same thing in many cases. Um, like, not to put too fine a point on it, but the term science, like, yes, it existed, but it was sort of just a general catch-all term for knowledge coming from the Latin, scientia, or um, sapience for that matter. Um, both have common roots, both deal with the same ideas of knowledge. But what's more, like, there are no scientists at this point in time. Um, the closest thing to a scientist is a natural philosopher. And even that term isn't really in vogue all that much until after Aquinas and after the Renaissance, which we'll talk about more when we talk about modern philosophy next week. Um, but up until now, like, science is basically whatever Aristotle said. Um, because Aristotle was the more 
was the philosopher more in tune with nature. Like Plato was all about big abstracts, ideas, the ideal forms, um, concepts like beauty, like justice, which we've talked about in the earlier lectures, um, and as you likely discussed in your analysis paper. Um, all of these ideas are the most real thing in the universe for Plato, and all of the stuff that he sees are mere shadows. Um, we are trapped in the cave, we are trying to escape, we are trying to get rid of these sort of temporary, superficial understandings of the world, and instead search for the eternal truths, the forms, the realities beyond reality. Um, Aristotle, by contrast, isn't really interested in the forms. He doesn't really think that they have all the weight that Plato seems to think. Um, instead, the forms very much get boiled down into the formal cause for Aristotle, and causality is all about practicality. Um, this is stuff that he talks about in the physics and the metaphysics. And while there are sort of abstract realities for Aristotle, specifically the prime mover and the way that cause and effect actually works, um, these things don't have nearly the sort of abstract, genuine realness as what Plato is talking about. Like Aristotle's prime mover is basically a word that fills a gap. It is a giant question mark at the center of the universe that basically causes stuff to be. Um, in the same way that we talked last week about like Aquinas delivers these five ways of proving the existence of God and basically says, you know, we need something to start all this off, whether it's movement or purpose or gradation or uh, necessity. Um, there needs to be something to get the ball rolling. And we call that something, that giant question mark, God. It's just a placeholder name, um, but it's an important placeholder name that will have meaning attached to it, just not the Christian meaning, not yet anyway. Like Aquinas will get back to where the Christian revelation fits into his philosophical understanding of what God is, but he starts with the philosophy, importantly, which is what I want to stress here. By starting with the philosophy, by starting with a proof of the existence of God that has nothing to do with what the Bible says, Aquinas is pretty confidently staking his claim not in the field of religion, but of philosophy, of science. He is saying God exists not because the Bible says so, but because science says so, because Aristotle says so, because common rationality tells us something must have put this world here, and whatever it was that put it here, we call God. Ovid called it nature. Plato called it the demiurge. The Greeks called it chaos, but we call it God. It's just a placeholder, just a name. Um, now that name does get filled out. We get that idea of simplicity in the next section, which we talked about. This idea that God, you know, does not have qualities, is not potential, does not have division, does not have like composition, is not a body. Um, and thus, since he is one simple united thing, his existence is the same as his essence and therefore his existence is the primary quality that Aquinas associates with him. But notice what that means with respect to science. Um, God is, is his primary characteristic. Um, he is something to be studied, to be thought about, to be reflected on. And while, you know, you're probably scratching your head there and saying to yourself, this isn't science. Like, where's the data? Where's the observations? Where's the information? Where's, you know, scientists? Where's the agreement? Where's the peer review? Like, where are all the things that define science for us in this day and age? Well, 
that's the thing. Like, those processes and forms very much were not defined in Aquinas' day. And in fact, Aquinas is making a huge step toward science here by, you know, rejecting the arguments of Christians gone by where, you know, they, like Anselm, are contending that, you know, God must exist because of his own necessity. Aquinas is basically saying, look at the world. You can just look at the world and can come to the conclusion that God exists. Where did everything come from? God made it. Why is stuff moving? Because God started moving stuff. Why do we have value? Why do we have judgment? Why do we say that something is good and something is bad unless we have God as a standard to judge by? Um, these are pretty common arguments in the medieval world, and they are assumed to be factual, to be as valid and as reasonable and as true as any other argument made by science in the last hundred years. Now, that said, I do want to sort of note that what we understand as science has changed since then. Um, science has increasingly moved out of the realm of philosophy, out of the realm of rationality in an abstract sense, and moved closer and closer and closer to rationality only when it is applied to observation. And like I said, we're going to talk about that more in the modern philosophers like Descartes and Hume, which we are going to confront in later sessions. But I want to stress that distinction now. Science, as the Renaissance sort of formulated it and developed it, as the scientific revolution sort of like picked up and perfected, um, that science relies entirely on observation, the senses. Um, when Descartes starts his med meditations project in our next lecture, he will start by saying, you know, all knowledge that we have derives from the senses in some way. Now, there are exceptions to this for Descartes. There won't be for Hume. Um, but this idea is extremely important. Um, and notice that Aquinas would probably agree with it. Um, his argument for the existence of God is based on what he sees, what he feels, what he observes. Um, observation leading to conclusions about the world. Um, now, this gets very caught up in the 16th and 17th centuries with the idea of experimentation. Um, science only refers to observable phenomena that can be repeated under like controlled circumstances or that can be extrapolated based on repeated experiences. That's what science is all about. When we talk about science today, that's usually what we are referring to. Um, my smartphone works because of a variety of scientific principles that have been developed and engineered in specific ways, the way that silicon reacts to electricity, um, the way that, you know, electricity can be channeled and controlled through the use of batteries or through the use of wires. Like, all of this stuff is the product of experimentation. Like, centuries of experimentation have led us to the point where I can, you know, access the internet on my smartphone. Um, but in Aquinas' day, like, this was cutting-edge science that he's doing here. Saying that God exists because of, or I can come to the conclusion that God exists because of the experience that I have, this was new and exciting and cutting-edge. Um, now, it doesn't yield technology, but it does yield truth, at least as far as Aquinas is concerned. 
Um, so I want to sort of push back against the idea that God as an unobservable phenomenon is something out of the realm of science. Um, like, for Aquinas, God is observable. Um, we can extrapolate God's existence because of, as he specifies in question two, because of God's effects, because of what we see. Like, by the logic that Aquinas is using here, this idea that we can extrapolate an unseen cause due to the effects of that cause, if we are going to, like, reject this argumentation, say that's not how logic works, that's not how science works, then you have to reject the Big Bang as well. Um, again, the only reason that scientists believe that the Big Bang occurred is because of the effects. We are extrapolating a cause from the effects of that cause. Galaxies are moving at high speeds, separating from one another, therefore we postulate they must have been thrust from a central position at some incredibly ancient time in the distant past. Any time that science is going to extrapolate about the past and not the future, um, they're going to be making the same sort of logical jump that Aquinas is making here when he posits God. Um, that's what I want to stress. There's not that much of a distance rationally between Aquinas' argument for the existence of God and our scientific argument for the possibility of the Big Bang. Where it differs, and I do want to sort of stress this, where science does differ from what Aquinas is doing here is that science always searches for a way to test it, for a way to experiment on it, for a way to prove that that is not only possible, but what can you know be done, what can be controlled. And in that sense, science is searching for a way to basically recreate the Big Bang. Like, that's a lot of the sort of, like, physical experimentation, a lot of the sort of look at the way that, you know, um, like, the super collider and the way that atoms function and, have like, creating new elements, that's a lot of what's going on there. Um, there's sort of a reach, like a, we hope to accomplish at the very end, a sort of, understanding of the way that matter was before the Big Bang happened, and the only way we can do that is by sort of recreating the Big Bang in its original state. Um, and if they can do that, then yes, I will note, like, there is a marked division between science's understanding of the Big Bang and what Aquinas is doing with God here. But the fact of the matter, as it stands, as we are now, is that any time that science extrapolates to something unseen, unobserved, in the past that we cannot duplicate at this point in time, it is the same level of extrapolation as what Aquinas is doing here. Um, science and religion, in Aquinas's sense, are not that far apart. What's more, science and religion can't be that far apart. Like the reason why we see there, that there is some conflict between science and religion is because they're essentially talking about the same things and coming to different conclusions. Like that's why there's a problem. That's why we're sort of stuck in this either or situation. Um, science tells us that the universe was formed from a big bang, that humans were the result of evolutionary processes. Christianity, especially in its most like conservative and fundamentalist forms, 
tend to assert that the universe was created in seven days by a benevolent creator and that humans were created from whole cloth as the sort of crowning achievement of that creation. See Genesis 1 for details. Um, when they disagree like this, you can't believe that both are true. Like, there are ways to sort of make them compatible in certain ways. Like, many Christians do believe that evolution was a key component of the way that, like, creation happened, either because they reject Genesis 1 or because they recognize that it is allegorical or because they see that there are space spaces for interpretation within the matrix of what Genesis 1 is doing. Um... That is absolutely a valid position. Many people hold it just because you hear about like people arguing that, you know, evolution shouldn't be taught in schools does not mean that all Christians hold that that is the case. Likewise, the difference between a Big Bang, like a spontaneous explosion that spat matter out into the universe, and a divine god who spat matter out into the universe really isn't all that different, as I've stressed here and as I stressed last week. Um, replacing every instance of the word God with the Big Bang in Aquinas question 2 doesn't really change what Aquinas is arguing all that much. Um, it's only later when we start giving the Big Bang sentience, like a will, that things start to move and change and, you know, become altered. But what I want to stress from our perspective, like from where we're sitting now, is that basically science cannot rule out the possibility of God. It is not within its power to do so. Um, since science is restricted to observation, the best that science can do is say that we have no evidence of God and therefore conclude that God most likely does not exist. The best science can do is to contradict the findings of the Bible or other specific religions. That they can point to the Bible and say there was no flood, or there was no Garden of Eden, or there what there was no you know name particular event. Uh, the world was not created four thousand years ago. Um, the Tigris and Euphrates did not look the way that they do now. Um, all of these arguments would contradict the biblical truth, but Christians will constantly come back and say you have not proven that God does not exist. Maybe you have proven at best that our text is not necessarily 100% reliable. And trust me, most Christians won't even like admit to that. Most Christians will find an interpretation or an explanation for why the data seems to conflict with the writing. But even in that best case scenario where science, you know, conclusively demonstrates that the Bible is untrue or that some religious truth is wrong, an attack on theism is a different thing entirely. Um, science cannot investigate motive as a part of how the universe works. Like, the difference between that rock fell off that cliff because of gravity um, and that rock fell off that cliff because God moved it is indistinguishable. Um, as I stressed last week, the best that Stephen Hawking can say is there is no need to believe in God. Um... You can even go so far as to say there is no room for God because science has, like, understood everything there is to understand. Um, but science can't ask questions like, why is it here? What is it doing here? What is it here for? Science assumes that those questions don't have any meaning, don't have any relevance. 
Which brings us to one of the most important components of this particular text, the language. See, what Aquinas is doing here in question one, and with his later discussion of names in question 13, um, is we need to talk about how we talk about these things. And this is a consistent peccadillo of a lot of philosophers. Um, there is sort of this own branch of epistemology as part of the branch of you know philosophy in general, where we need to talk about how language works in order to properly understand how our arguments work. And Aquinas is doing this all the time. Um, like I mentioned last time in the last lecture in question two, when he's talking about the difference between self-evident to us and self-evident like in itself, God is self-evident because of his, like he must necessarily exist, but we don't necessarily know that and it is therefore not self-evident to us. That's a distinction in the language. Aquinas is specifically finding that like our term is equivocal. Um, it means two different things at two different times. We are speaking irresponsibly in a manner of speaking. And that's what Aquinas is frequently stressing in question one and in question 13. He's trying to get at how language works, how it talks about these things, how it talks about God. Because we do use our terms and our language and our words pretty irresponsibly a lot of the time. And in fact, a lot of the philosophical problems that people have been butting heads with, um, many philosophers will contend that these philosophical problems are purely the product of irresponsible language usage. Um, as we sort of poked at when we were talking about Plato, um, when we were saying, like, why do we need to have universal definitions for things like beauty or justice or piety? Um, that's a question that we frequently feel. At this point in our class, we have already talked about it, at least in the, the uh, like, session that I'm actually meeting with on a regular basis. Um, it's something that comes up. And the questions that people pose to Plato are, how do you know that they aren't just words? That they are not just names? An idea that is frequently called nominalism in the medieval circles. What if these words are just names and there is no substance behind what they name? What we call beauty may have no reality to it, may have no substance. Maybe there isn't a capital B beauty someplace that all beautiful things take their cues from. Maybe it's just a word that we use to describe a certain affection that we feel or a certain sensation or a certain quality that we observe over and over and over again. Maybe we abstract the concept of beauty from beautiful things rather than understand all beautiful things as coming from some common source beauty. And this is, again, a fairly popular contemporary idea. We tend to think that there is no underlying definition for a lot of our ideas. What is beautiful to one person may be completely different to somebody else. I may think that Guardians of the Galaxy is a great movie. You may think that it's garbage, and it may completely be relative to what our understanding of a good movie actually is, which means we all define good differently, which all means we all define beauty differently, which means we all define justice differently, which means that there is no underlying definition. There are only different subjective definitions being put together. Um, and that's an extreme to which I do not want to go. Um, the idea that there is no underlying like reality unifying us, that our language is just made up of 
individual languages being like crashed together in public conversation that's an idea i definitely want to push against and i do not want to recommend to you for reasons that we will talk about later um again as we get more towards contemporary discussion from the medieval's perspective the main difference was between nominalism on the one hand names are just names and realism on the other names name realities things that in fact exist um and there are people on both sides like that's why it's a discussion medievals disagree about how these things work as well as we do um, and aquinas is doing a pretty good job here of sort of conflating the two ideas he is avoiding either a hard nominalist position where names are just names but he is also avoiding a hard realist position where the names are just words attached to realities underlying them for aquinas both are happening simultaneously there are realities at stake and our names do insufficiently refer to them but when we use the names we're really missing those realities in a grand sense um so let's talk about that um let's look at exactly what aquinas is doing in question one and in question 13. um so notice the first article whether besides the philosophical sciences any further doctrine is required this is aquinas facing this issue head on this issue of where do science and philosophy and religion sort of like bump into each other do we need both he's basically saying like can we have science and not religion can we just do away with revelation and rely entirely on our own scientific knowledge our own scientific awareness can we take plato and aristotle and excise the bible and have a decent understanding of the universe and his argument is no like we can't do that it was necessary for man's salvation that there should be a knowledge revealed by god besides the philosophical sciences investigated by human reason first because man is directed to god as to an end that surpasses the grasp of his reason the eye hath not seen o god besides thee what things thou hast prepared for them that wait for thee but the end must first be known by men who are to direct their thoughts and actions to the end remember back in plato when we talked about like all of plato's argumentation comes up to this one question that he needs euthyphro to answer what is the purpose of man's existence and both plato and euthyphro have to throw up their hands and admit they don't know what the gods want why are we here don't know now aquinas stresses given philosophy we can't answer that question like given the philosophical sciences given our inquiry given reason alone and given science and observation alone we cannot come to a conclusion about ends about purposes because science again can't observe purpose and therefore cannot prescribe purpose and rationality without something to reason from will ultimately yield nothing like plato can't get to it and we can't get to it um we cannot get there using our brains as rational instruments we cannot get there using our senses as ways of understanding the world if there is a purpose to life it is unreachable by either of these methods and therefore we need revelation it was necessary for man's salvation that there should be knowledge revealed by god besides the philosophical sciences investigated by human reason 
Um, as he stresses further on down the paragraph, um, in, on page 459, the second column, the truth about God, such as reason can know it, would only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors, whereas man's whole salvation, which is in God, depends upon the knowledge of this truth. Therefore, in order that the salvation of men might be brought about more fitly and more surely, it was necessary that they be taught divine truths by divine revelation. It was therefore necessary that besides the philosophical sciences investigated by reason, there should be a sacred science by way of revelation. Now, this admittedly assumes that revelation is true and exists. Like Aquinas is basically saying here, like we cannot get to salvation through reason alone. Like we can see that, the, that a God exists. Just look at question two, prime movers, something needed to move and create the universe. We call it God. But we cannot get to why does God want us to behave in certain ways and what ways are those through philosophy and science alone. All we can conclude is God exists, God has certain qualities, he is simple, he is good, he is wise, etc., etc. Um, we can come to those conclusions, but we can't know what our role in this process is until we factor the Bible in as well. We know that there's a God, we don't know that God saves. And we don't know how God saves without the Bible, in short. Um, so science is insufficient to that end. But notice that that's it for Aquinas. Like, again, we can conclude that God exists and we can talk about what God is in this negative simplest or like simplicity sense way before we get to the Bible, before we get to Revelation, before we get to the truths offered by priests and by tradition, before we get to, you know, histories being told in scripture. All of that comes after we already know that God exists through science and through philosophy. Um, now, the next couple of articles that he talks about, whether sacred doctrine is a science, whether sacred doctrine is one science, whether sacred doctrine is a practical science, this relies a lot on categorizations that are not especially relevant to what we're talking about in this class, which is why I had you mostly skip over um, those particular articles. Um, but I want to jump to the sixth article, whether this doctrine is a wisdom. Um, because while, again, sort of this classification, what is wisdom, what is science, how do they differ, like why is you know it one and not the other, that's not especially relevant to us. But it is important what he says, especially in the objections here. Um, so notice in his, the we have our basic argument. The doctrine is wisdom above all human wisdoms, not merely in any one order, but absolutely. For since it is the part of a wise man to order and to judge, and since lesser matters can be judged in the light of some higher cause, he is said to be wise in any genus who considers the highest cause in that genus. Thus in the realm of building, he who plans the form of the house is called wise and architect in relation to the subordinate laborers who trim the wood and make ready the stones. Thus it is said, as a wise architect, I have laid the foundation. Again, in order of all human life, the prudent man is called wise inasmuch as he directs his acts to a fitting end. Thus it is said, wisdom is prudence to a man. Therefore, he who considers absolutely the highest cause of the whole universe, namely God, is most of all called wise. Sacred doctrine is a wisdom because it deals with the highest level of knowledge. 
the knowledge about original causes, the knowledge about the governance of the universe, the knowledge of the purpose to which all things are attributed. Since the architect is more likely called wise than the builders who implement his design, so would you say that someone who studies God is more wise than somebody who studies the stuff that God has made? By this reasoning, and you can see this consistently throughout this first section, Aquinas is basically arguing that sacred doctrine, like theology, the study of God and the study of, you know, the revealed truths of the Bible, this is the highest level of science and wisdom. It is a science and wisdom that is superior to all the other sciences, specifically because it is dealing with the fundamental principles that even enables those sciences to exist. Like, why bother to study, you know, chemistry, how chemicals mix and how you can use solutions to, you know, like create different compounds, why would you do that when you could instead devote your attention and your study to why we even bother to make chemical compounds in the first place? Why study health when you don't understand what the purpose of life is? Why study physics when you don't understand what the purpose of the universe is? Um, why study astronomy if you don't understand where stars and planets come from and what they are intended to do? Um, in short, like Aquinas is saying, since there is no differentiation at this point between you know, the sciences as they are devoted to observation alone and the science of studying purpose and meaning in the universe, Aquinas is saying that the study of purpose and meaning is way superior to the study of just observable phenomena. Um, like, again, we have to take what scientists tell us and put it into a context. Science tells us that DDT is killing off penguins. We have to decide what to do about it. Science tells us that vaccines cause, you know, um, cause us to become less vulnerable to illnesses, um, but may have dangerous side effects. We have to conclude whether it is worth the risk or not. Um, NPS, many of those side effects are overblown and are like the result of science making mistakes just so you know like call out a public service announcement um here what aquinas is basically saying is like if we study the world but do not bother to study god we could die heathens like there's no point in just fiddling about with scientific phenomena with observable stuff if we don't understand why we are doing it, what the benefit is. Um, a scientist who makes, you know, a, an astonishing scientific revelation that also destroys or threatens all of humanity is doing science badly, in short. Um, hence why you have guys like Oppenheimer regretting their interactions with the Manhattan Project, wishing they hadn't split the atom because of the sheer destructive potential that that meant. Um, they went into science to learn things, but science without purpose is destructive and chaotic and uncontrollable. Um, now we get another sort of question about like where God falls as far as this science is concerned, whether God is the subject matter of this science, another classification question. Um, and in this case, again, God is the subject matter of the science. The relationship between a science and its subject matter is the same as between a habit and its 
or a power and its object. God is the object of sacred uh, sacred doctrine. It is what everyone is trying to understand and like explain. Therefore, it is absolutely the object of this study. Um, so therefore, God and studying God is the highest goal of the highest science. Like the entire purpose of human wisdom, as far as Aquinas is concerned, is to understand who God is and how he works and how we're supposed to relate to him. But notice that is the case with science in mind. Like science and faith for Aquinas are directed at the exact same goal, God. Science is attributed to understanding God through his effects. Faith and revelation is the science of understanding God through what God has told us. They are not incompatible. The universe as God made it is the universe that science observes and tries to understand. Um, there's no contradiction here. Um, but also notice that Aquinas, when he is sort of like pressed will basically put the superiority on revelation rather than reason and observation. Um, so note in Article 8, where it's, whether sacred doctrine is argu argumentative. I answer that as the other sciences do not argue in proof of their principles, but argue from their principles to demonstrate other truths in these sciences, so this doctrine does not argue in proof of its principles, which are the articles of faith, but from them it goes on to prove something else, as the apostle argues from the resurrection of Christ in proof of the general resurrection. In short, Aquinas isn't going to argue that the resurrection happened. He is going to argue that given the resurrection, we can make these conclusions about how we are supposed to behave, how God behaves, and so on and so forth. Um, science, because it deals only with proving other things about science, is ultimately inferior in this sense. Um, now, that said, if it is, it is to be borne in mind in regard to the philosophical sciences that the inferior sciences neither prove their principles nor dispute with those who deny them, but leave this to a higher science, whereas the highest of them, namely metaphysics, can dispute with one who denies its principles if only the opponent will make some concession. Now, as much as, again, we're sort of skeptical of Aquinas in our modern age because he is dealing with these things that science, as we understand it, does not deal with, notice his observation here about the way that science works. In the inferior sciences, which he means the sciences of observation, sciences like physics, sciences like chemistry and biology, um, sciences in the sense of like psychology and sociology, if you disagree with the principles in that science, then you have to have reference to a higher science to prove it. So for example, like if I say that I disagree with the psychological assumption that like we are all operating according to the id, the ego, and the super ego, uh, ego in the Freudian sense. If I'm going to argue against Freudian science, then what psychologists are likely to do is point me to something higher, something like neuroscience, brain chemistry. How does the brain actually function? Maybe the id, the ego, and the superego are just metaphors for how the brain itself actually works. But if you once again question that, if you say, okay, well, I distrust your findings about neuroscience, I don't think that you're 
observations about the way the brain works are accurate, now you're going to be talking about, well, how is our observation reliable? How does the eye work? How does it re communicate reliable information to us? How does light work? How does electricity work? In short, we're going to be at physics. Now, if you question physics, how do we know how the how like the physical laws work why do we take them for granted what observations do we have about that if you are not willing to accept those fundamental principles that like observation is reliable that our senses communicate reliable information to us you end up in philosophy um as we as aquinas observes here at the end of the day, you will always have reference to a higher science until you get to the point that you need to make a concession in order to even be able to talk about what it is that you're talking about. So for Aquinas, the higher science to physics is metaphysics, which, you know, in our sort of parlance, we would say that if you were disagreeing with physical truths, then you have to talk to a philosopher. You have to talk to a metaphysician, which, of course, means that we are now in the territory where, like, I am... As a philosopher, I'm saying that philosophy is the highest science, the one that even scientists must refer to. And many scientists would disagree with that. And I would disagree back, and we would go back and forth until one of us makes a concession, until one of us observes that the other one is right or allows for the, other, for the possibility that the other person is right for the sake of the argument. In one sense or another, when you hit a brick wall, you're going to do one of two things. Either jump to a higher science, or someone has to make a concession. If you were not willing to make that concession, and if you're not willing to jump to a higher science, or you disagree about what that higher science is, well, I don't think philosophy should be higher than physics, or rather, I don't think that the Bible should be higher than philosophy, now you've reached an impasse. Now it is impossible to convince somebody of your position. So notice, hence, if he concedes nothing, it can have no dispute with him, though it can answer his arguments. Once you've hit that point, you're done. Like there's no conversation to be had. Either a concession must be made, some common ground must be found from which to argue, or there is literally no argument to be had. Science cannot convince someone who is convinced that science is bad. Science cannot convince someone who says that scientists are untrustworthy as a matter of course. Science, and for that matter philosophy, and for that matter religion, cannot convince anyone who refuses to concede any ground. That's just the way that logic works, on a very basic level. But notice that since for Aquinas, sacred scripture is the highest of all these sciences, the highest of these doctrines, he goes on to argue, hence sacred scripture, since it has no science above itself, disputes argumentatively with one who denies its principles only if the opponent admits some, at least, of the truths obtained through divine revelation. There is no argument to be had with someone who out and out rejects the truth of the Bible, as far as Aquinas is concerned. Like, there just isn't. You can't have that conversation. That's bedrock as far as logic goes. If, you are, if the person who you were talking to refuses to acknowledge the truth of the Bible in any capacity, if they're unwilling to acknowledge the truth of God's existence in any capacity, you're done. There's no talk to be had. There's no argument. There's no dispute. 
Only through concession can a common ground be found that you build from. Notice that that's the way that logic works here, and that's a profound observation. Something that many philosophers have grappled with at this point, will continue to grapple with later, and will forget about when they are making arguments later on. And as anyone who has had any argument with anybody on Facebook knows, if you can't find common ground, you're just going to be talking in circles and you're never going to get anywhere. Logic doesn't convince people unless there is at least some small part that is already convinced. And if that's the case, then it's just a matter of finding inconsistencies, not proving something new. Logic doesn't have any other weapons, and arguably science doesn't either. Science can only conclude from shared observations, shared experience. If you take that away, or if you reject that experience, if you deny it or say that there is some other motivation behind it, then science no longer has a conversation with you. They can't agree. Where science and religion disagree in our contemporary world is where they refuse to concede where religion says everything that science says is wrong and where science says everything that religion says is wrong, then there will be no disagreement and there will be no converts. Instead, they need to start from where there is agreement. The stuff that they observe about the world that the Bible says is true as well. Then maybe a concession can be made, a, an argument can be claimed. But if you start as a scientist with denying God, or if you start as a religious person with denying the reliability of science, you're at an impasse. There is no conversation to be had, and you can't convince anyone. Um, now, there's more to this conversation that we will talk about later when we get into exactly how this works in the modern and postmodern philosophy. So hold on to that. But for the moment, that's as far as we can go. Um, this is an observation about the nature of logic, rationality, and observation itself. Reason, revelation, and observation all have this in common. But if you don't accept common ground, there's nowhere to go. Um, if you do not have an, some higher science to appeal to or some common experience to appeal to, you're never going to convince anyone of anything. Now, notice the last claim that Aquinas makes here about sacred doctrine. Um, he argues, thus we can argue with heretics from texts in Holy Scripture, and against those who deny one article of faith, we can argue from another. If our opponent believes nothing of divine revelation, there is no longer any means of providing the articles of faith by argument, but only of answering his objections, if he has any, against faith. Since faith rests upon infallible truth, and since the contrary of a truth can never be demonstrated, it is clear that the proofs brought against faith are not demonstrations, but arguments that can be answered. What Aquinas concludes here, what his ultimate argument is, as long as like whether sacred argument doctrine is argumentative, and like how exactly you do argumentation with sacred doctrine, what Aquinas believes 100% is that since science and revelation agree on the nature of the universe and on the basic truths of the world, they should be, you know, persuadable. There is no disagreement between science and revelation because revelation is talking about the same reality that science is talking about. 
But importantly, notice that he stresses faith rests upon infallible truth. And since the contrary of a truth can never be demonstrated, it is clear that the proofs brought against faith are not demonstrations, but arguments that can be answered. Anyone who disagrees with revelation from Aquinas' perspective is arguing against an infallible truth. They're arguing against what is the case. And if that is in fact what is the case, then any objections they have can be answered. That's all that they can present, arguments. They can dispute. Um, they can object, but those objections can be responded to. In the same way that you'll notice that like all of the objections that Aquinas raises, he replies to. Um, but notice also what he says in his second reply, or the reply to objection two. Um, it is especially proper to this doctrine to argue from authority, inasmuch as its principles are obtained by revelation, and hence we must believe the authority of those to whom the revelation has been made. Um, notice the second objection is one that we are likely to raise. Um, if it is argumentative, if sacred doctrine is argumentative, the argument is either from authority or from reason. But if it is from authority, it seems unbefitting its dignity. For the proof from authority is the weakest form of proof, according to Boethius. Notice Aquinas is making a claim that, or Aquinas is entertaining a claim that we all claim. Why should I trust the Bible, you ask? What is its authority? Why should I trust it? Um, arguments from authority are bad arguments. I would rather have an argument from rationality or from observation or using any form at all except authority. Why should I trust people? People lie. They make up shit. Like, there's no reason to think that somebody is telling me the truth in any given situation, especially if it benefits them. But notice how he responds here. It is especially proper to this doctrine to argue from authority inasmuch as its principles are obtained by revelation, hence we must believe the authority of those to whom the revelation has been made. Nor does this take away the dignity of this doctrine, for although the argument from authority based on human reason is the weakest, yet the argument from authority based on divine revelation is the strongest. Notice that Aquinas assumes here that the Bible is divinely inspired, that it is divine revelation. He does not have any claim or any qualm against the people who wrote the Bible. He does not think they mistranslated or mistransmitted the information. He did not think that Paul lied or that Paul is giving us bad truth. Like, he is assuming for sure that they communicated the will of God via revelation correctly. And admittedly, if you do not take this as true, now we're at that same impasse we talked about before. But importantly, if it is true, if, as Aquinas says, these authorities are reliable and are presenting divine revelation, then no human agency is more reliable than this. Revelation is talking about infallible truth, absolute truth. Scientists make mistakes. Philosophers make mistakes. Rationality is not always 100% trustworthy and neither are our senses, but revelation, if there is a God and God told us what is the case, then that is absolutely truthful beyond any argument that can be presented against it. Like, there's just nothing else that can be considered more true. And I want to stress this, because this is a really important component of how Christians consider their own doctrine and their own perspective. 
they see themselves as possessing the one truth. And that all human sinfulness and all human rationality is subordinate to that one truth. And even if you reject the Bible, even if you reject the sources that Aquinas is referring to here, you have to see the the sort of like correctness of this argument that people lie, they make mistakes, senses aren't necessarily trustworthy, reason isn't necessarily trustworthy, but if there is one objective God who is seeing the entire universe, then anything that that God says must itself be trustworthy, assuming that that God is not out to deceive us in some way. If there is divine revelation, divine revelation has more authority than any other single source of knowledge in the entire human experience. That's Aquinas' argument here. And that's a compelling argument. Again, given the authority of the Bible, given the fact that we do have some kind of revelation. Without it, we're lost, in short. None of our rationality, none of our reasoning will come nearly as close. And I want to stress that. Um, increasingly, we believe that nothing is true, that nothing is reliable, that nothing is the case, or at least nothing can be, you know, convincingly proven to be the case. Rationality is toothless in our postmodern age. What I want to stress is that Aquinas is the product of a time that did not believe that at all. They had access to the one capital T truth, divine revelation. They believed that the Bible was capital T true, absolutely true, unquestionably true. And if there is, in fact, that one point in the universe that you can build from an absolute truth to other truths, then that is the most important and the only way that you can get to truth. Without it, you end up with relativism, nihilism, subjectivism, and all of the sort of doubts that we entertain on a regular basis in our modern age. Aquinas didn't have those doubts, and it's hard to argue that he was worse off for having them, though we will see people argue that. Um, now, the next section, the ninth article and the tenth article, tie into sort of this other central question that Aquinas has been dealing with throughout this text, and we've seen like echoes of it frequently. Um, and this also ties to what he's talking about in question 13 as well. Specifically, how do we talk about God? Because as we've mentioned, most of what we understand about God is negative. Like I use the example of, that C.S. Lewis gives us of like, how does a clam explain being picked up out of the water by something that doesn't have a shell and that doesn't have like soft underbellies and does not, is not basically a clam. Like, how do we understand God when all that we understand about him is how unlike us he actually is? And Aquinas stresses that as much as that is a huge limitation, that is not the only way that we understand God. Um, so we get all of our information through the senses, through our observations, through our interactions with the world. And admittedly, that is woefully short of understanding God. Again, his effects are finite, but he is himself infinite. Therefore, it is very difficult for us to get to, to the infinite from the finite. Aquinas is aware of this. That's one of his major objections. And is it possible or whether it can be demonstrated that God exists? Um, now, 
What he is stressing in Article 9 and Article 10 of Question 1, as well as in the discussion of names, is how do we get there from here? How do we bridge that gap? How do we go from understanding that there is an infinite source, because there are finite necessary things, to what is that infinite source like? What is the nature of God? Can we say that God is good, or that God is wise, or that God is just, when we really can't get there from here when the infinite versions of wisdom justice and goodness are so very different from the finite things that we call wisdom justice and goodness um so first of all he talks about metaphors metaphors are just comparisons you hopefully have learned about these in your high school classes um, comparisons like similes which use like or as or comparisons that do not use like or as which are generally called metaphors if I compare you know a person to a brick wall that is a metaphor um, I am basically saying that they are strong immovable tough however you want to call it this is a metaphor um, but he notes that in holy scripture metaphors are tricksy like we want to understand God precisely and therefore it seems that metaphors aren't appropriate Hence his objections. It seems that Holy Scripture should not use metaphors for that which is proper to the lowest science seems not to befit this science, which holds the highest place of all. But to proceed by the aid of various similitudes and figures is proper to poetic, the least of all the sciences. Therefore, it is not fitting that this science should make use of such similitudes. Like, comparisons are poetic. That's nice. They don't help us actually understand things. Therefore, we should get rid of them. But his answer is, it is befitting the Holy Scripture to put forward divine and spiritual truths by means of comparisons with material things, for God provides for everything according to the capacity of its nature. Now it is natural to man to attain to intellectual truths through sensible things, because all our knowledge originates from sense. Like he's saying it straight out here. We have no knowledge except what we observe, what we sense, what we get through our senses. Therefore, for anything abstract or unknown to be described to us, it has to be described by means of what we see and understand through our senses, because that's all the knowledge we have. Like, there's no way to get knowledge without employing the senses in some way, or employing the information we have already gotten from the senses. The more abstract our concepts become, the more steps there are between our sensation and those concepts, but it doesn't mean that they're not based in sensation. Like, we can talk about something abstract like love, but we only understand love through multiple intermediary steps dating back to basically, like, comfort and the feeling that we have when hugged or embraced. Um, it's an abstraction on top of an abstraction on top of an abstraction, but that third abstraction is on top of sensed experience. It is a feeling. It is something that we feel or sense or interact with in the world in some way. Um, hence, we have to do the same thing with God. The only way that we can relate to God is by means of things that we do in fact understand, the things that we do in fact know, i.e. sensed things. So it is not inappropriate to talk about God in material terms, to make those metaphors because those metaphors are the only way we can get there from here. Like, there is no route to God except through comparison. And those comparisons have to be to material objects, because that's all we understand and all that we know. Now, Hume is going to disagree with this, strongly. Hume is going to argue that specifically because we only know material things, we simply cannot get to God. 
Um, like, he's just going to take the opposite position. Where Aquinas says we have to use material comparison to get to God because God exists and the only way that we can know him is through material truth, Hume is going to say we can't get to God specifically because our metaphors are going to always be insufficient and very weak. Um, now, the other thing that Aquinas stresses, though, you'll see in his reply to Objection 2, he says that the ray of divine revelation is not extinguished by the sensible imagery wherewith it is veiled, as Dionysus says, and its truth so far remains that it does not allow the minds of those to whom the revelation has been made to rest in the likenesses, but raises them to the knowledge of intelligible truths, and through those to whom the revelation has been made, others may also receive instruction in these matters. Hence, those things that are taught metaphorically in one part of scripture, in other parts are taught more openly. The very hiding of truth in figures is useful for the exercise of thoughtful minds and as a defense against the ridicule of the unbelievers, according to the words, give not that which is holy to dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine. In short, what he's saying here is while the scriptures are filled with metaphors and the only way that we can understand God typically is through metaphor. They are also explained literally in other places. Every metaphorical truth has a literal truth underlying it and the Bible uses both. And we should base our understanding of analogy and metaphor on our understanding of the literal truth at stake. Which that's the level of hermeneutics that we are definitely not able to dive into at this point with only 15 minutes left to go in this lecture. Um, but keep that in mind. Like Aquinas says that as much as there have been many allegorical interpretations of scripture, many understanding and many investigations into the metaphors of scripture, they all rest on literal explanations whenever possible. Yes, the language will often be metaphorical because we have no other way to understand it, but it will refer to a literal truth explained elsewhere. Um, now, likewise, he talks about the way that these senses work, um, how there are multiple senses in Scripture, and these senses may very well be conflated, which further confuses things. But again, this is important because we can have, like, it is necessary for the Bible to keep these senses going. So look at his answer here. The author of Holy Scripture is God, in whose power it is to signify his meaning not by words only, as man can also do, but also by things themselves. So whereas in every other science things are signified by words, this science has the property that the things signified by the words have themselves also a signification. Therefore, that first signification, whereby words signify things, belongs to the first sense, the historical or literal. That signification whereby things signified by words have themselves also a signification is called the spiritual sense, which is based on the literal and presupposes it. For example, if you sacrifice a lamb in payment for your sin, and then you compare Jesus to the Lamb of God, you are talking about the spiritual sense. It has a literal meaning grounded in the original sacrifice and its understanding, but it is now taken to a symbolic level. It has a spiritual meaning. This thing signifies this other thing. The, the lamb signifies Jesus. Um, so we get to this conclusion that, um, like, for as the apostle says in Hebrews 10.1, the old law is a figure of the new law, and Dionysus says the new law itself is a figure of future glory. Again, the new law, whatever our head has done, is a type of what we ought to do. Therefore, so far as the things of the old law signify the things of the new law, there is the allegorical sense. 
so far as the things done in Christ or so far as the things which signify Christ are signs of what they of what we ought to do there is the moral sense but so far as they signify what relates to internal glory there is the anagogical sense since the literal sense is that which the author intends and since the author of holy scripture is god who by one act comprehends all things by his intellect it is not unfitting as augustine says if even according to the literal literal sense one word in holy scripture should have several senses scripture works differently than scientific argumentation aquinas is concluding one thing one object one statement can have multiple senses it can refer to like other truths in this literal way it can refer to other truths in this allegorical way it can refer to one's moral obligations and it can refer to this sort of eschatological truth of coming glory um there are many ways that this works but importantly the fact that these words have multiple valences the fact that they can mean multiple things simultaneously is also how Aquinas reconciles the issue between how we understand God given our material limitations. Again, if God is infinite, our words to describe him fall woefully short of what he's actually doing. But notice how he rectifies this in his discussion of the names of God. I answer that. Names which are said of God negatively or which signify his relation to creatures manifestly do not at all signify his substance, but rather express the distance of the creature from him, of his relation to something else, or rather the relation of creatures to himself. But as regards names of God said absolutely and affirmatively as good, wise, and the like, various and many opinions have been held. For some have said that all such names, although they are applied to God affirmatively, nevertheless have been brought into use more to remove something from God than deposit something in him. Hence they assert that when we say that God lives, we mean that God is not like an inanimate thing. And the same in the like manner applies to other names. This was taught by Rabbi, Rabbi Moses, Maimonides. The first sort of way that we refer to God is in this negative sense. So when we say that God is infinite, we mean that he is not finite. When we say that he is eternal, we say that he is not bound by time. Um, we are expressing the distance between the two of us. Now Maimonides is arguing that even when we make positive assessments about God, when we say that God is wise or that God is good, we are doing the same thing. We are sort of like implicitly asserting that God is not wise when we say that God is wise. We are saying that his wisdom is much greater than our wisdom. But this Aquinas notices doesn't really seem to work. Um, he will express that in the next paragraph. Both of these opinions, however, seem to be untrue for three reasons. First, because in neither of them could a reason be assigned why some names more than others should be applied to God. For he is assuredly the cause of bodies in the same way as he is the cause of good things. Therefore, if the words God is good signify no more than God is the cause of good things, it might in like manner be said that God is a body inasmuch as he is the cause of bodies. Pe like people say God is wise, they don't say God is six foot tall and, you know, has abnormally large ears. Even though that would be just as true, given the way that Maimonides talks about it, where God, you know, doesn't have these things, and we say that God is wise specifically to posit that God is more than wise, or in this other sense, that the names applied to God signify his relationship towards creatures. God made the world, and therefore we could theoretically say that God is the world. Or God made goodness, therefore God is good. In both cases, Aquinas is like, no, that's not how we use those words. At first, because we could say anything about God in that situation, God created a cup, therefore God is a cup. 
um, that doesn't make any sense. Secondly, because it would follow that all names applied to God would need be said would be said of him by way of being taken in a secondary sense, as healthy is secondarily said of medicine because it signifies only the cause of health. Thirdly, because this is against the intention of those who speak of God. This is not the way that the Bible works. People are not saying like God is more than good when God when they say that God is good, or at least there's no evidence of it. So the problem here is when we say God is good, it means something different from when we say a person is good. When we say God is great in the same way, when God is wise or just, it doesn't mean exactly the same thing. It is not univocal. The word doesn't mean the same thing when we say it about people and when we say it about God. However, it is also not equivocal. That's the other stress that he must, that he must claim here. Um, in the fifth article, he says whether what, what is said of God and of creatures is univocally predicated of them. He answers, univocal predication is impossible between God and creatures. You can't say that God is good in the same way that a person is good or that a dog is good. But on page 473, neither on the other hand are names applied to God and creatures in a purely equivocal sense, as some have said. Because if that were so, it follows that from creatures, nothing at all could be known or demonstrated about God, for the reasoning would always be exposed to the fallacy of equivocation. Um, if you said that God is not good in the way that people are good, then what you were basically saying is you can't say that God is good. You can't say that God is just. You can't say that God is wise. You can't say anything about God. And yet people do in Revelation and elsewhere. And remember, since Revelation is 100% reliable, since it is a source of infallible truth, if Peter says that God is good, then God is good, and we have to understand that in some way. So Aquinas' conclusion, therefore it must be said that these names are said of God and creatures in an analogous sense, that is, according to proportion. In short, when I say that God is good, I am not saying that God is good in the exact same sense as I am saying that people are good, nor am I using it in a completely different sense, as though only God can be good in this particular way. What I am saying is that what God is, is analogous to goodness. It is similar to goodness, although I can't fully understand or express what exactly it looks like. Remember, God is simple. His goodness is his justice, is his wisdom, is his greatness, is his very existence, is his essence, is so on and so forth. Every quality of God is bound up in his simplicity. It is one thing. It can no longer be differentiated. Therefore, when I say that God is good, what I am saying is that God's existence, his simple essence, is something analogous to what I understand goodness to be in human beings. This is his way of solving this problem of sort of explaining how language works when we are using it to describe these higher forces, these higher beings. Language has these multiple senses like he talks about in the Bible. It has these multiple valences, these multiple like applications. And when we talk about God, we can talk about God accurately, but only to a point. We are forced to use metaphorical language. We are forced to rely upon analogy. The Bible relies on analogy because all we can understand is our material existence, our material reality, the things that we see and touch and interact with on a regular basis. Therefore, for us to talk about God, and we have to talk about God, is for us to basically apply this metaphor of things that we interact with and experience to things that we can't interact with or experience. 
We take the analogies of the world and apply them to the spiritual realm, to God. That's how we solve the problem. And many people are going to disagree with this. Like, many people are going to fight Aquinas on this and argue that his analogies are ultimately not all that forceful and that he is basically defaulting to either unification or equivocation. We're going to have lots of people who argue that you simply cannot reach God from here, that you can't talk about him, that the words that you say about him will never be reliable or trustworthy or accurate. All of these positions we are going to explore, or philosophers have dealt with, and we will just have to, you know, trust me when I say that they have been dealt with. Uh, But importantly for Aquinas, this is the way that he solves his dilemma between reality and like the philosophy that deals with it and the spiritual truths and natural of natural revelation this is how you get to god from here from our limited human perspectives but the doubt that he is casting on language is probably going to be casting a greater shadow than the actual truths that he appeals to here philosophers are going to increasingly question language They're going to increasingly doubt that we can use our words to come up with truth. That rationality itself is limited by the, the limitations of our concepts. And just as we question Plato about the reality of universal things like beauty, justice, piety, etc., so many philosophers are going to question even the casual way that we use words. They're going to say that using a term like justice is in fact itself inaccurate. Um, And we will talk about that later. For now, next week we move on to Descartes and the modern period in philosophy, which introduces a radically new way of looking at the world, a radically different perspective, but one that is way closer to our own and our own sort of alignment of how the world and how our minds works. Um, So for next week, we're reading Meditations 1 to 3. I will hopefully be recording the lecture about that tomorrow. Um, I hope that it comes off more, like, intuitively um, than Aquinas did. But before you sort of, like, abandon Aquinas forever, remember that his perspective is one that dominated for a long period of time, one that informs a lot of people to this day, and one that should not be so casually written off. Um, The idea that truth is, in fact, something that you can deal with, interact with, talk about, and, you know, get at, is an important one. Um, We should not be eager to abandon it, although there are certainly advantages in, in abandoning it, as we'll talk about.